This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Welcome to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Visit joy.org.au to find out more about our Joycasts. There is a queer angle to every issue, and we will find it. But don't expect us to be nice or politically correct. Nothing is sacred, and the team will be finding the queer and profane wherever we can on Joy 94.9. Is nothing sacred? Hi there, Joysters. This is Jim, and you are listening to Is Nothing Sacred on Joy 94.9. I'm in the studio with Steph. Hello, Steph. Hello, Jim. And with James. Hello, James. Hello, Jim. And uh, we've got a guest in the studio who we'll introduce in a minute because we've got another guest that's coming on the phone. We'll introduce the guests together. And thank you, Sonia and um, Lauren, for Broad, another Broad show. And um, down there telling us what to believe in because we're all feminists. So good on you. And uh, we're going to talk about um, the social economy and and the sharing economy tonight. So, Steph, do you want to um, introduce these topics? Sure. So we have two guests we're going to be talking to tonight. We're going to be talking with Darren Sharp, who is Director of Social Surplus and the Australian Editor of Shareable. He's going to tell us all about the sharing economy. If you don't know what that is, then you should stick around and you will find out and if you have any questions for Darren you can SMS on 0427 JOY 949 that's 0427 569 or you can email on air at joy.org.au or you can phone on 1300 JOY 949 that's 1300 569 and we're going to play some odd songs tonight there's going to be it's going to be a bit of a mix there's going to be some Eurovision of course and then whatever is the opposite of Eurovision think about what that might be we're pretty much playing that <laughs> <laughs> and our second guest is in the studio right now. It is Callum Lindsay Field. Hello, Callum. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. So, Callum is from the Foundation for Young Australians, and he's going to chat about um, some reports that have been recently released: the new Basics Report and the new Work Order Report, which links in pretty well with the chatting about the sharing economy, because it's all about where is the economy going in the future, what skills will we need, what are the big picture trends, and how does Australia fit into that? Are you there, Darren? I am. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you so much for joining us on this Monday night. Um, So we were hoping to chat with you about the sharing economy. Can you start off by telling us what is the sharing economy? Yeah, absolutely. Look, essentially the sharing economy is quite simply uh, about matching needs with haves. So uh, everyone's got something in surplus that they um, might want to potentially share. It could be... um, stuff so we've all got a bit too much stuff if we have a look at the kind of degree of uh storage cages we have in the community it's a bit scary really um so people are going to platforms like street bank for example to get rid of their excess stuff or to share it or swap it it could be about space it could be about you know renting out your spare bedroom uh through short-term accommodation providers like airbnb uh it's also about skills so uh, people are increasingly sharing their skills through these PDP platforms as well, whether it's through errand marketplaces like Airtasker or um, more sort of uh, community-minded platforms that are more involved in bartering like Neboz and GiveGet, for example. So there's a whole range of different services that are essentially matching um, supply and demand at a peer-to-peer level, which is really what the sharing economy is. 
is about in essence. And how does it differ from um, the social economy? Is it the same thing? Look, I think there's a lot of... Um, I kind of talk about how we're almost going through a, a Canberra explosion of, of terminology and innovation. Yeah. And everyone's sort of, you know, there's a lot of overlap between aspects of the, of the social economy, of the solidarity economy, of the resilient economy. So there's a whole range of different intersecting networks and, and movements. Um, and there's obviously tensions within those as well and, and divergences where we see aspects of what is often known as the sharing economy um, really more about an on-demand service mm. economy or gig economy. So there's a lot of terminology which can lead to some confusion. But I think the authentic sharing economy um, is really has a lot to do with the social economy and, and the sharing and, and resilient economy movement as well, absolutely. So um, a few weeks ago we were chatting about unions and we had the head of Trades Hall in this very studio um, and he was talking a bit about, I guess, changes in the way that people work, um, potentially increasing the risk of exploitation. And I know that there's been a lot of criticism of companies like um, Uber, for example, is one that comes up most often where you have these people in these quite, well, what unions would call and what we would call precarious work uh, environments where they don't have protections. Um, I guess, is that something we should be worried about? Um, I think it's definitely something to be concerned about. Um, I think there's really a, a crisis of, of value allocation that's happening with a lot of these uh, on-demand service platforms. Uh, and and what that means essentially is that um, people are, I guess these, a lot of these companies are using um, digital technology uh, to do nothing more than really re-centralise uh, wealth and, and decision-making and power um, in, in digital clothing. So it's using very, uh, uh, I guess, you know, ancient, in some cases, corporate sort of models using, you know, digital clothing. So um, essentially what a lot of these platforms are doing is trying to um, provide as, you know, as much return as they can to their shareholders, which is, their, I guess, their operating logic, their DNA. But you've got to ask the question of what position does that put, um, you know, drivers who are mm. trying to make an extra buck or hosts who are trying to rent out their um, spare bedroom to pay the rent in some cases. Often they're sort of breaking the law by not necessarily getting the, the um, permission of their, their, their landlords and so on. So there's lots of talk about access over ownership, but you actually have to um, own quite a bit of stuff if you want to, if you want to share it. So ownership, I still think, is an important as ever. That's why there's a growing movement at the moment called platform cooperativism, which is looking at emerging ownership models and cooperative models for some of these, you know, new digital platforms using sometimes, you know, cooperatives and social enterprise models to try and look at how can you actually, um, rather than go down the path of using extractive models of value creation, uh, using more di distributive or generative forms of, of value creation. So, yeah, those questions are really key at the moment in terms of discussing the sharing economy. Darren, it's Jim here. I want to know what the role, what, is there a role for regulation in that? Because one of the things that concerns me about Airbnb and, and Uber, for instance, I mean, there was an interesting um, bit of publicity about Uber a couple of weeks ago in, in Melbourne about, uh, though, about a young couple who've bought 35 cars which they just let out to drivers to be Uber drivers. So they've got a fairly big investment in this company in having, you know, 35 
high-end cars, nicely luxuried and cleaned every day and filled with petrol and driving around. But their clients, their the passengers don't have any real protections in terms of service standards or safety standards or anything because there's nothing like that that's checking them. So what's the role of regulation? You know, a lot of us have fought very hard for years and years and years to get good regulation in the, into the economy. And, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think regulation is, you know, just as important now as ever. And um, with all the talk of, of digital disruption and, and, you know, being agile and innovation... It's and, even more you know, important. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, work, worker protections and, and safety standards and, and, and fair taxation and, and, and all those sorts of issues are, are just as important. And I, I think it's just important to look at the distinction between what might be becoming the, the on-demand service economy, also called the gig economy and the authentic community-based sharing economy. So um, there's still uh, quite a bit of, of, of overlap and, and confusion about those different terms and those different movements. But regulators have to play a really a leading role in this space um, and rather than take a, a sort of knee-jerk response to, to these issues, which... Um, which isn't really that surprising given the, the sort of pace of change and the degree to which a lot of these digital players they can put out an, an, an app and it just there's just the legitimacy, a perceived legitimacy by being available on your, you know, your smartphone that you can access these services. Um, but they're obviously not above the law and they're not above the, the standards that we've come to expect for, for, for you know, very, all the various issues that I've talked about. Mm. Darren, we are going to go to some messages, but please stay on the line and we'll be... Um, returning very shortly. If you have any questions for Darren, you can phone on one three hundred join nine four nine, SMS on o four two seven joy nine four nine, or email on air at joy.org.au. You're listening to Is Nothing Sacred. You're listening to a Joycast from GLBTIQ Community Radio Station Joy ninety four point nine. Hi there, Joysters. You are on Is Nothing Sacred on Joy ninety four point nine. This is Jim, and we've got on the line with us Darren. Sharp from Shareable, and he's the director also of Social Surplus. And we're talking to him about, you know, the sharing economy or whatever you might like to call it. <laughs> what I would like to know, Darren, you are there still, are you? I am. I am. I'd like to know what is it in the um, in the sharing economy that is there to stop or to put barriers up to the concentration of wealth? Sure. I mean, I think, you know... Or just, we're really just going to be allowed really to be greedy and own as much as we like. I've got yeah, nothing I mean, to share, by the way. <laughs> <It's not> <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that there's a difference there between between sharing and, 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 and renting and swapping and, and trading. and So I guess the, the sharing economy, in, in many ways, is a really diverse... Community. So, what falls under the banner of sharing is a lot of those different kinds of activities, and some are market-based, and some are, you know, um, more about people coming together on the weekend and swapping their surplus fruit and veggies at, you know, parks and so on every, you know, weekend, and clothing swaps and tool libraries and men's sheds and all sorts of other community activities, which I would sort of, you know, time banking, alternative currencies. I would call all those sort of things part of the sharing economy. Um, the other kind of platforms, the on-demand service platforms that we've talked about that are, I guess, part of that more broadly speaking, um, you know, what's there to, to stop that concentration of, of, of wealth and power is, 
I guess, the, what's there in the regular economy, which is the, the, the state and the regulators at various levels of government who can set um, policy, policy and, and, and legislative agendas around how those platforms operate, how they're taxed, how they protect consumers and workers and so on. Um, so, yeah, there's a growing interest in those protections and, and, the, and also alternative ownership models, which I've talked about. Um, for an example, you know, um, there's a whole bunch of new services that are coming online at the moment, which are sort of producer-owned platforms like Stocksy, which is in, in Canada, where, you know, we all kind of may be familiar with using stock photography, any, any kind of designers or people in, in marketing or web the web industries, creative industries will be using stock photography businesses and you go to the sort of brand name places and you'd hate to think how much um, money the actual artists are getting in those transactions. But there are cooperative versions of that, like Stocksy, which is a, a worker-owned um, stock photography cooperative. And they actually split the revenue that comes in, costs about $20 US for a photo and half of that money goes to the uh, creative producers of the value, the photographers themselves. So more and more we're seeing examples like that where um, taxi drivers for example are kind of trying to um, you know go go down a different route uh, and they've started their own taxi cooperatives in places like Denver Colorado like green taxi so there's just more and more there's thousands of these examples that are popping up all over the place which we cover at shareable we sort of tell the story of sharing and cover all these sort of new developments every day so you mentioned earlier about alternative currencies, and you, I think you mentioned time as one of those currencies. How does that fit in, I guess, with our modern world, um, within the capitalist model that we have, I suppose? Yeah, I get, look, I guess that's especially... Time is especially um, important for... I think there's two groups in our society that are kind of being squeezed at the moment. It's probably, you know, younger people who are making that transition from school or... Or, or, or TAFE or uni to the workplace and older people like maybe over 55 who are kind of going through various demographic shifts and changes to the economy which put them in a difficult position and time is a way is a, I guess a, a way that we can actually um, participate in the economy in, in the sharing economy without having the need for cash so you can actually you know, take a, I guess, a, what I would call an asset-based or a strength-based approach to this, which is um, a lot of the work that I do looks at from that perspective where you kind of see, um, you know, this abundance of resources that we have in our community, people with skills, people with the capacity to, you know, fix things, to actually make stuff. And they might not have money, but they can teach other people how to, you know, cook a meal or how to, um, you know, paint or how to fix uh, a computer or whatever it might be. And that is real value in the community that's not currently really being rewarded or valued or allocated properly. So time banks and alternative currencies provide you with a mechanism for actually exchanging that surplus value that we can produce uh, in our communities that can be a benefit, not just to ourselves, but to others. And then you can use that currency to exchange goods and services as you would normally with cash economy. Um, hi, Darren. This is Callum from the Foundation for Young Australians. Um, I'm, Hi, Callum. Hey, how are you doing? Um, really interested in learning, as, as you said, time, and young people often don't necessarily have that time to share. I'm interested, how do we ensure that these emerging sharing economies and these communities that are being developed are inclusive of people that may not necessarily have the capital all the time to share that and become part of that community? Sure. I mean, I think it's about really trying to 
build partnerships with with various community stakeholders. I mean, like a really um, good example is a project um, that I've come across in the last year or so called Better Together, and that's um, trying to foster intergenerational sharing. So it brings younger people together with older people, and the younger people teach um, the older people about digital skills uh, to get them using their smartphones and their computers and tablets and so on, and then older people then... Um, you know, can mentor the younger people in terms of their life experience or their business experience or running a business or running a family or whatever it might be, being members or leaders of their community. So there's more and more of these sort of informal networks that are springing up all over the place that are giving um, all kinds of people the chance to, to share their time and to share their skills and to share their experience in a way which is rewarding and mutually beneficial for the communities that they're involved in. Certainly doesn't sound all bad to me. <laughs> Sounds a bit like Donald Trump and The Apprentice to me, I have to say. Oh, no. <laughs> I suppose, is well, there... bring him up. <laughs> um, Darren, is there... I mean, we talked a little bit about um, uh, before about um, how, how we'd police or we'd um, regulate these industries. Are there examples, I guess, where eventually, you know, think through things like Uber, where we are sort of tackling where... Uh, these kind of more this disruptive type of, um, you know, you know, uh, economies in the sharing economy are actually meeting with regulators or regulators are trying to, you know, essentially tackle and, and work out new ways that they are going to, you know, kind of meet meet the needs of the fact that they're not disappearing and the fact that um, at the same time we do need to balance that out with some regulation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that issue itself is really key to a lot of my work and it's focusing on this notion of sharing cities because I think a lot of these problems or issues or challenges that we're facing as a society happen at a, an urban or a, or a city level um, and that can be you know large towns and areas as well I'm not sort of discounting rural and regional areas but so much migration is moving to cities and cities really have a key role to play in setting policy agenda for housing for jobs and for transport and for other things in terms of how they're public land and public buildings and public infrastructure are utilised. So sharing cities provide a new story, a new way of actually understanding how the sharing economy can be uh, addressed uh, from, a, I guess, a win-win-win scenario where you bring local government together with the business community and, and, and sharing groups and community groups together to try and collaborate to develop policy settings which make sense for uh, everybody, all those different players Involved, And the best examples that are happening in places like Seoul in South Korea through their Sharing City Seoul program, in Bologna in Italy, they've got um, regulations to support the urban commons. Um, so there's, and there's glimpses of that happening here locally in Melbourne and elsewhere in Australia where we see groups like 3,000 Acres opening up vacant land in the city for food growing, for urban agriculture, where we're seeing, you know, a whole range of initiatives like that that are trying to look at how we can reframe the use of public space and um, and make sure that people who are sometimes locked out from accessing those mm. those public assets or commonly held assets can actually start to play a role and have new pathways to participate in the economy which were previously excluded to them. Mm. Darren, we are almost out of time, but I know you are working on a book about sharing cities. Um, when can we hope to see that on our shelves? Yes, it won't be on your really shelves, exciting. it'll be in your tablet sure. <laughs> <laughs> it will be it will be in a tablet and it's due for release in september of this year so it's not very far off and um you can track all the developments that are happening with that at shareable.net which is the global hub for the sharing economy which i'm a part of and there's an international team uh from all over the world putting um 
that book together and I'm co-authoring a chapter on work and another one on, on waste and the circular economy, which is a whole other sort of area as well. So please keep an eye out for that in September and you should be able to get access to that for free on Shareable. So that's really exciting. Great. Thank you so much for talking with us tonight and staying up so late on a Monday night. I know you have young kids, so thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Joycast is a free service brought to you by Joy 94.9. Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au. Hello, you are listening to Is Nothing Sacred? You are on Joy 94.9. And tonight we're talking about some big picture trends in the world, in our economy. We've just been chatting with Darren Sharp, telling us all about the sharing economy. And now we're talking to Callum Lindsay Field from the Foundation for Young Australians. Hello. Hey, how are you doing? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. So, the Foundation for Young Australians have released a few reports in the last kind of year or so, um, and the most recent one was a couple of weeks ago, the New Basics Report, um, which I know talks about the skills that young people need for the future and to get jobs. Yes. So, what's the secret? <laughs> so, um, the New Basics, yeah, so we released it a couple of weeks ago. Essentially, what we were doing, we looked at 4.3 million job ads and we were looking at what employers were asking for in those job ads. And the trend that's emerged is they're increasingly asking for enterprise skills. Now, enterprise skills, um, not always known exactly what they are. Not everyone understands the term, but it's otherwise known as soft skills or transferable skills. Essentially, it's things like problem solving, critical thinking, creativity, digital literacy. These are the sort of skills that employers are asking for and are increasingly going to be need for jobs in the future. So what we found was that um, skills like digital literacy or creativity uh, asked for 200, 200% 100% more in job ads and in those job ads and we look specifically at jobs that young people are trying to enter into as well. because the employers don't actually know what the jobs are? <laughs> well, th there's still a question of that. This is just, it's trying to have a, a check-in at what employers are asking for and what we found is that they're paying a premium for these skills as well. So for jobs that include dig digital literacy, they're paying $8,000 more than jobs that don't include digital literacy for these entry-level positions. Um, so what that indicates is that this is something that is important to employers. They don't, it doesn't tell you us everything, but it gives us a really good sense that as a trend over the past couple of years, there's been this big increase. This is going to mess up the notion of vocational, uh, vocational education, isn't it? Because it sounds like they're asking for things that... Um, the much maligned arts degree actually <laughs> teaches. Mm. Well, it's, it's not, what it's not saying is that things like literacy and numeracy are not important. So these are still vital skills as part of it. It's just showing that in the future economy, it is literacy and numeracy plus these enterprise skills. Um, and so what we found in our previous reports as well is that when you look at an analysis, and this came from our new work order report a couple of year, uh, last year, late last year, um, there are 70% of entry-level positions, um, those positions that young people are looking to find jobs in, are at high risk of automation. So some of those sort of processes in digital disruption that Darren was talking about previously are having a dramatic impact on jobs such as you know, working at a, as, as a shop clerk or, you know, working at Coles. Filing. Filing. Those sort of jobs are able to be automated through algorithms, so creations of these particular types of the digital processes that replicate jobs. Um, 
And what it means is that these enterprise skills are becoming more important. So though any sort of jobs that require what's called high touch um, or like high amounts of sort of analytical critical thinking are the jobs that will be retained and those that are going to be um, require very sort of easily automatable tasks won't be there. So we're seeing this trend over time that enterprise skills are the skills that are going to be required for the future jobs. And are these skills that people have? Do, do employers able to find, um, I guess, employees to fit um, their needs? So it's, it's important to say that enterprise skills, so say communication or problem solving, we all have these skills. And so this is not a bad news story. These are things that we develop in our everyday life that we use at school if you're at school and you're working in projects if you're in a sports team or you're involved in drama or music but they don't necessarily go together do they with you have to have experience in such and such which so many um which so many um people ask for in job ads they're, they, they're definitely connected. There's, there's, there's two different things that are happening there. So um, enterprise skills are important and that's what employers are asking for. There's also, to a degree, some sort of literacy in a workplace. So that just experience in there where you understand the language that's being used in the workplace, I would say is important as well for those specific jobs. But coming back to sort of the bigger picture, what we're asking for is for government, for society to rethink education and not just to prioritise literacy and numeracy, which are really, really fundamentally important, but to be also thinking about how all young Australians can be developing these types of skills throughout their curriculum. Because at the moment, it's sitting in the curriculum, but it's not being taught in a way in which young people can effectively develop these skills so they're ready to then take on the jobs that are increasingly asking for them. So what happens to the students who don't have enterprise skills? Well, as I was saying, they're, they're things that you develop outside of work. So They'll be on benefits. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can definitely develop these skills outside of work. It's just we're, we're looking at the overall. So what we found in our, another report released last year, how young people are faring, was that a third of young people are not proficient in Australia, young students aged 15, are not proficient in problem solving, financial literacy and digital literacy. But say if we look at other groups in society, marginal groups, diverse groups, for example, Indigenous people, mm. that is looking more like over 50% are not proficient in digital literacy. They're not proficient in, in critical thinking. They're not proficient in financial literacy. So it means that there's a barrier for these young people if it's not embedded in part of the education system. And what does digital literacy mean in the context? Because, you know, most people can, you know, have a smartphone that they use. Um, is that enough for these kinds of jobs? So what we found was that 90% of jobs in the next three to five years are going to have to involve digital literacy to a competency that allows you to communicate online, to connect with others, to use social media and use that as part of your job. But importantly, 50% of jobs are going to require young people to be digital makers. So they're going to actually be, have to be able to code. They're going to have to be able to use WordPress, you know, design the back end of a website, use um, emailing sort of campaign software, examples like that. They're going to ha actually have to be able to create digital products because that's an increasingly part of our social lives. Joy 94.9 is a GLB TIQ community radio station in Melbourne, Australia. Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au.
Welcome back to Is Nothing Sacred on Joy 94.9. And we're talking with Callan Field from the uh, Foundation for Young Australians. Um, Callan, I do have a question um, with regards to young people and how there's often a disconnect between uh, what governments um, understand about young people on, uh, and how they can actually be supported. Uh, and I suppose it's also about this idea that, you know, there will be potentially young Australians that will succeed in the new economy, but there'll be a lot that will perhaps slip through the cracks if they don't have particular skills. So I'm just wondering if there's any research that you guys are doing or um, thoughts on how governments could do a lot better. Well, I, I think it's important to involve young people actively in opportunities, if, say if we're talking in a school environment. Um, so going back to what's the shift in the workplace and how we prepare young people, um, FYA runs a program, Twin Dollar Boss, which allows young people to develop a business over four weeks with a social conscience um, and design that, use $20 and give a dollar back. It's just an example of a way in which you can involve young people in that earlier, earlier stage of life and show that they are capable to do amazing things and it involves them in that level. Going more to your question though about further down the track, how do we involve young people in policy? I think there needs to be a whole lot of work done there from a government perspective but um, we're currently uh, through initiative YLAB um, at the Foundation for Young Australians trying to connect young people up with the Parliament of Victoria and it's just a matter of bringing together two diverse groups in a, in a way, the young people and the politicians and showing that those different worlds and then developing it through a language of policy. So, um, for example, I've previously worked um, on a program which we had a couple of years back called Student Shoutout, and we brought students to policy makers and had them inputting on public policy debates. Obviously, students don't know public policy. They're not able to say, here's the system, these are the big shifts we need to make. But students are there in the classroom every day and if you ask the right questions, you can pull out relevant sort of policy information. So I think, I think you make a really good point. It's really important to involve young people in the processes of policy making and I think this is going to be an emerging thing over time that we're going to develop. Callum, we have a question from a listener from Robert. Thanks so much for writing in, Robert. Robert says, Hi guys, very interested in your discussion tonight. A question for Callum. Does the FYA report acknowledge the responsibility of industry in educating its future workers? Or should the burden be solely on the taxpayer to educate people for longer than ever in order to be competitive in the job market? Ooh. I think it's a really good question. Um, as part of our strategy that we're proposing, an enterprise education strategy that we want governments to adopt in Australia, um, it's fundamental that industry works with schools to design new ways of engaging young people into what the future workforce looks like. Schools by themselves can't predict what jobs exist out there. They're not in the workplace at the moment either. You can't throw this onto teachers and go... Boy, that's sounding what? dangerously like the Conservatives in the UK's um, academy things with bringing private enterprise into schools. That's not what we're proposing. There's a lot of different models in which you can involve industry in schools. It's important that government and education experts lead that charge, but industry has a really important role to play because they're the ones that have the jobs, they know what the jobs are, and they're the ones that can feed that information back. One of the key problems for young people is that they have 
a career education system which is not fit for purpose at the moment. They don't know what jobs necessarily exist at the other end. Um, but it seems from your own um, survey that you did that industry doesn't know what jobs there are either because it has all these enterprise skills which it can't actually um, quantify as being necessary and it's prepared to pay for unquantifiable skills. Well, it shows that it's a transformative time. Um, business w does know a lot more about what jobs exist now, but it is a prediction to guess about what jobs will exactly exist in the future. I don't necessarily it's know, I mean, this might be a question for you, Callum, but whether um, enterprise skills are necessarily less quantifiable than other forms of skills. I mean, obviously you have some industries like if you're a builder or if you're a surgeon when there's very strict criteria and you're either accepted or you're not. But I guess for something else like, um, what's a good example? So for, uh, say, like public speaking skills, um, that's something that could be assessed, is something that could be taught with particular levels, as we know through something like Toastmasters or something like social media. You could quantify that with how successful you are in raising the number of followers that your company has on Facebook or by getting a particular engagement percentage. Like, I think there is more work being done in that space to understand how to quantify things. It's, it's hard to measure. It is definitely hard to measure. We know it when we see it. Like if it looks, mm. if it looks like someone's a good presenter, we we have that sort of reaction. We go, that person's a good speaker. If someone's a good communicator, or they're a great creativity, a creative thinker, we're able to spot that straight away. Hard to measure, but it doesn't mean it's not important. And the research shows that these skills are going to be increasingly important into the future. So we have to start building models, and that does involve industry, because they they know what happens at the employment end of of things. How do we design an immersive experience? And this is key. Young people need an immersive experience of what it's like beyond the classroom. Cool. They need labour market information, and that's one of the key problems with our current system at the moment. You'll have young people and running some of our programs. You'll have year 10s going, listing the suit jobs, as I like to call them. So you've got the, the nurses, the doctors, the teachers, the firemen, the policemen, men and women, importantly. <laughs> um, uh, but they don't know what, like what a social media sort of campaign manager is. There's a whole range of jobs that exist now and will exist in the future that are not, is not, that information is not being brought to students. So that's why we need to make sure that there's multiple stakeholders involved in this process. I think there needs to be a language shift here because what I hear is a, um, is a very conservative um, analysis which leads me to think that opinion is going to be far more, far more um, important than fact and evidence. And, you know, when you say that it's very hard to measure, well, it's not. You can actually measure these things and we can quantify all sorts of things in, through social research. And, um, and that gives us a measure of impact and that's really what is important. And, uh, and if we can do that, then we get away from oh, well, everybody thinks so-and-so is good. Or, you know, everybody thought Tony Abbott was good once. <laughs> but guess what? And um, so I, I think we need to actually be really careful. The, the, the language that's being used to describe all this is still a very conservative, old industry language, as far as I can tell. So what would be the alternative? Well, I think that the... One of the things that needs to be done, here's something for the Foundation for Young Australians to do, go and do an analysis of the history of transformational periods in 
the workforce. You know, at the end of the Second World War, or during the Second World War, the majority of secretaries of Commonwealth departments were philosophers. They weren't economists or sociologists or anything like that. They were actually philosophers. And the one thing that philosophy degrees teach you is how do you analyse? How do you get how do you get together the information and order it and sort it in such a way that it builds a cogent argument? Mm. And there, and that's a sort of skill that sounds like the new economy skill to me. <laughs> so, you know, is it really new or is it just the circles turning? No, it's... There's, there's, there's things that are consistent in the past and there's things that change. But I think th- the philosophy is a great example. Um, You're only saying that because you've got a philosophy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I already knew um, you need to import, I've, I've already said we involve industry, but we don't want to see this as a strict, this is the job that exists, this is preparing exactly for that job. It's a matter of thinking, and this is why we're talking about enterprise skills. It's thinking about that all-rounded self, that individual that is that in a sort of disrupted work environment that is global, that is automated. How do they work with others better? How do they, in a sort of sharing economy sort of situation, as Darren was talking about previously, how do they make those connections between people? And that requires that sort of social skill as part of that as well. So it, it does require those sort of broader sort of skill sets. I did say it's difficult to measure it. It's, I'm not saying it's impossible to measure it. And that's we're in the game of trying to find how we measure those sort of skills effectively. So it means we can embed that as part, of the, as part of the education system. But, yeah. We are running out of time, but we have one last question, which is kind of a couple of questions, <laughs> um, from Robert, our listener, who maybe you can answer this briefly, Callum. Um, Robert says, further to all this, should we even be, sorry, further pivoting our education systems to meet the needs of business, Surely it will be the most generous government subsidy program of all time. Considering there is more wealth in the world than ever, is there not room within your report for a discussion of redistribution and social inequality? Very good points. Yeah, that is a much bigger topic and definitely something that should be investigated. Um, We think young people are capable of creating their own futures. We want young people as job creators rather than job seekers. Um, and you need to be giving them this sort of skill set, this confidence, this, you know, investment in young people to be able to get them to go out there and create this themselves. So we have looked at employers and getting a job at this point in time is important to the way in which people live and how you build a life. But obviously, if you invest in these sort of skills, we'd hope young people will be the ones creating a new sort of economy into the future as well. It's not just about that direct job. I think we'd better finish on that note. Thank you so much, Callum, for joining us. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to Is Nothing Sacred on Joy 94.9. Nearly the end of the show. Um, we're, we're finishing the show. It's the end of the show. It is the end of the show. <laughs> Thanks so much, Callum. Thank you very much. And also guess what, Steph? We do know what we're talking about next week. We're going to be talking yes. about... about um, Violence and so on yet again yes, in the in gay community. Especially street violence in the LGBTI community. So we've talked before about family violence. Now we're talking about We're going to go into public violence. violence. We might choose some cheerful songs to balance all that out. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au.
Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.